Hi, good day and welcome to About Patterson, a podcast about the past, present, and future of our hometown, Patterson, New Jersey. As all Pattersonians know, Patterson was founded by our first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, in 1791. Hamilton's vision for Patterson was as America's first planned industrial city, but even Hamilton couldn't have seen what Patterson would become. Patterson led the Industrial Revolution where Sam Colt manufactured his first revolvers, John Ryle manufactured America's first silk, Thomas Rogers built the first American locomotives, and John Holland tested the world's first modern submarine. But Patterson isn't just about the Industrial Revolution, it's about us, the people of Patterson. It's about our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents who came to America and settled in Patterson for a better life. We all know Patterson today isn't the Patterson we grew up in, but something is happening that no one saw coming. After decades of decline, a miracle happened. Two Pattersonians, former Mayor Bill Pascrell in the House of Representatives and Frank Lautenberg in the United States Senate, passed a bill that was signed by President Barack Obama, making our Great Falls District a national park, and in my view, changed Patterson's future for the better. This is a podcast about Patterson, the historic Patterson we learned about, the Patterson we grew up in, and the Patterson that, in my opinion, is emerging from the ashes. So thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome to part two of Reuben Hurricane Carter, John Artis, and the Lafayette Grill Murders, Just the Facts. It's about 2.40 on the morning of June 17, 1966, and we'll take a look at the crime scene and what happened inside the Lafayette Grill that night. Then we'll account for the timeline of Reuben Carter and John Artis in the hours leading up to and after the crime. In the Carter's book, he said he left home later than usual that night for a meeting with his personal manager about an upcoming fight. On his way to the meeting, Carter picked up two friends, Eddie Royster and John Artis. Later that night, Carter would visit several bars, meet with friends, and be stopped by the Patterson police two times. The two Patterson Daily newspapers, the Patterson Evening News and the Morning Call, told the story of what happened inside the Lafayette Grill early on the morning of June 17, 1966. The Lafayette Grill was a three-story building with a tavern on the first floor and apartments on the second and third floors. The evening news article included a picture of the only exterior evidence of a crime at the, at the Lafayette Grill. It was a photo of a bullet hole in the window. This was all the newspapers could show because the inside of the Lafayette Grill was a bloodbath. The two witnesses who survived the shooting and the police put together what happened inside the grill early that morning. At approximately 2.30 a.m., three patrons were drinking inside the Lafayette Grill. Part owner James Oliver was tending bar with three patrons. Fred Cedar Grove Bob Nyax, a 60-year-old man from Cedar Grove, who was sitting at the bar with his back to the front door. Willie Marins, a 42-year-old man who lived just a couple of blocks away, was sitting near Nyax at the bar. And Hazel Tannis, a 51-year-old woman, was seated at the end of the bar near the front door. Oliver was closing for the night and was counting the money from the register when two armed black men entered the tavern. One was a tall man carrying a handgun, the other a short man carrying a shotgun. 
In the 1960s, it was understood that blacks had their taverns and whites had theirs. The Lafayette Grill was a white tavern. So when two armed black men came in through the front door, Oliver knew it meant trouble and threw a beer bottle at the two men. As Oliver turned to run, the shorter man standing at the open end of the bar pulled the trigger on the shotgun, striking Oliver once in the back, severing his spinal column and killing him instantly. His body lay in a crumpled mass on the floor behind the bar. At the same time, the taller man stepped behind Nyax and shot him in the head with a thirty-two caliber handgun, killing him instantly. He then turned and shot Marins in the right temple, the bullet passing through his brain and out his left eye. Miraculously, Marins would live for another six years. When the two gunmen turned to leave, they spotted Hazel Tannis behind the front door. The shorter man emptied the shotgun into her stomach, and the taller man emptied his revolver. Tannis lived for another month before dying. On the second floor, 23-year-old Patty Graham, soon to be Patty Valentine, was sleeping on her sofa in the living room of her apartment when she was awakened by loud noises. At first, she thought it was the bartender, Oliver, locking the front door after closing the bar. She looked out her side window and heard a woman screaming. When she looked out her bay window on the Lafayette side street of the building, she saw a white car parked in the middle of the street. She noticed that the license plate was out of state, either blue or black with gold lettering. The car also had unusual taillights, narrow towards the center and flared out at the ends. Watching from her window, she saw two well-dressed colored men, one tall wearing a hat carrying a handgun, the other short and stocky carrying a shotgun. Both men were well-dressed, and the shorter man wearing a cream-colored sport jacket. The two men stepped off the curb, ran to the white car, and sped away. Graham raced down the stairs barefoot and opened the front door of the tavern. Standing inside, she was surprised by a white man who told her not to go in there. When Graham saw the carnage, she screamed and ran back upstairs. The white man was named Alfred Bellow. Believe it or not, surrounded by the bloodbath, Bellow didn't have any change, so he took a dime out of the cash register and helped himself to $62 in cash. He went to the payphone between the restrooms and slipped the dime into the slot and dialed the operator. Listen, lady, send the police to the Lafayette Grill. What's the street address, sir? I don't know the address, the Lafayette Grill. Shit, I'll go outside and take a look. Bellow ran outside looking for a street sign, but didn't see the sign on the corner of Lafayette and East 18th. The first police radio call went out at 2.34 a.m. that there was an incident at the Lafayette Grill. The dispatcher mentioned a white car. Patricia Graham ran back to her apartment twice, first to call the police and then a second time at Hazel Tannis' plea to make a call to a Tannis friend. When she returned downstairs, a police car screeched onto the sidewalk. Officer Alexander Greeno and his partner John Unger were the first to arrive on the scene. Bellow, standing on the sidewalk, was shouting, There's people shot up inside. Officer Greeno calmed Bellow down enough that he could get a description of the car. Greeno broadcast the first description of the car. Be on the lookout for a white car, two colored male op- occupants. The scene inside the bar was horrific. Apparently, Fred Nyax never knew what hit him. His body was slumped over with his head resting on the bar, his foot resting on the bar stool, and a burning cigarette still between his fingers. 
there was a shotgun shell resting near him on the floor. Willie Marins had actually survived. Even with the bullet entering his left temple and passing through his brain, Maris played dead until after the gunman left. Bleeding profusely, Marin struggled to a pole, made his way into the restroom, and then returned to sip on his glass of beer while he waited for the police. Near the front door was Hazel Tannis, a waitress at the Westmount Country Club. Mrs. Tannis had arrived only a few minutes before the gunman. The two gunmen hadn't seen Tannis until they turned to leave the tavern. She was standing behind the door. The short, stocky one fired the one shotgun blast into her stomach while the taller man emptied his revolver. Amazingly, Hazel Tannis survived for another month. She died at Patterson General Hospital on July 14th. Behind the bar was James Oliver. With his spinal cord severed, he died instantly. Patricia Graham was friends with Hazel Tannis and bartender James Oliver. After seeing the horror of Mrs. Tannis and the crumpled body of Oliver behind the bar, she was nearly in a state of shock. Officer Greeno escorted her to her apartment. Upstairs, Graham added that the white car had dark blue or black license plates with gold or yellow lettering and very unusual taillights called Butterfly at the time. She drew a sketch of the taillights in Greeno's notebook. Greeno was unfamiliar with the make of the car that those taillights belonged to. Downstairs, another Patterson police officer arrived on the scene with the unlikely name of Lawless. Detective James Lawless ran from his house four blocks away and arriving at the scene breathless. He went inside the grill and said to himself, My God, this is a slaughterhouse. He spotted Hazel Tannis on the floor with her intestines hanging out in intense pain. She looked into his eyes and said, Please kill me. Ambulances began to arrive. They loaded Hazel Tannis on a stretcher and took her to Patterson General Hospital. Willie Marins, his head bleeding and one eye shot out, was drinking his beer. Unger asked him if this was a holdup. Marins said no. He was loaded into an ambulance and taken to St. Joseph's Hospital. Earlier in the evening, on the night of June 16, 1966, Reuben Carter had a meeting scheduled with his new personal advisor, Nathan Selman, who wanted to discuss an upcoming fight with Rocky Rivero in South America. They agreed to meet at the Patterson Club La Petite. According to Carter, he didn't get out of the house until late. On his way to the club, Carter picked up John Bucks Royster. Carter described Royster in the 16th round as the friendly neighborhood alcoholic. On their way to the club, La Petite, Carter picked up an acquaintance, 20-year-old John Artis, who was looking for a lift to another club, the night spot. Carter agreed to drive Artis to the night spot as long as Artis could wait until Carter finished his meeting with Selman. According to the 16th round, when the meeting was over, Carter dropped Artis off at the night spot and continued on to Richie's hideaway. Around 2 a.m., Carter returned to the night spot to meet with another friend, Wild Bill Hardney. According to Carter, Catherine Kathy McGuire came over and asked Carter if he could give her and her mother, Mrs. Anna Mapes, a lift to their apartment. According to Carter, because they were in a dangerous neighborhood, he drove the two women home at 2.15 a.m. The two women lived nearby, and the round trip took about 10, maybe 15 minutes, putting him back at the night spot at around 2.30 a.m. That's when Carter decided he was out of money. And along with Artis and Royster, 
drove to Carter's home to get some money from his wife. He let John Artis drive and Royster ride shotgun. Carter jumped into the back seat of his 1966 Dodge Polaris with New York's license plates. It was 2.34 a.m. that the first police call went out to look for a white car with out-of-state plates. This was the result of the Alfred Bellow phone call to the police. At 2.40 a.m., about 12 blocks from the murder scene, Sergeant Theodore Captor and Officer DeCellis spotted the white car for the second time. Five or six minutes before, they had spotted what they thought was the same car just a few blocks away but lost it. When they spotted the car for the second time on East 28th Street between Broadway and 14th Avenue, they pulled the white car over. According to Carter, it was a friendly stop. The car was driven by John Artis with Royster riding shotgun and Reuben Carter in the back seat. When Sergeant Captor saw Carter, he recognized him as the middleweight boxer. According to Carter, Sergeant Captor asked, How you doing, Hurricane? Carter said okay and, and asked why they were being stopped. Oh, nothing really. We're just looking for a white car with two Negroes in it. But you're okay. Take care of yourself. Later, Sergeant Captor explained that he didn't think a world middleweight contender would be involved in such a crime. It would only be another few minutes before Sergeant Captor and Officer DeShellis would receive the second radio call identifying the taillights of the getaway car. This was the identification of the taillights from Patricia Graham. According to Carter, they then drove to Carter's house, retrieved some cash, and returned to the night spot. Shortly before 3 a.m., Carter, Royster, and Artis left the night spot and dropped Royster off at his house. They were driving to Artis's place when all hell broke loose. In the 16th round, Carter describes the second stop. Once again, it was Sergeant Captor. Then several more cars came screeching up to Carter's white Dodge Polaris. There isn't, Carter said, there isn't much in the world that can scare me. But you can imagine about five police cars loaded down with shotgun-bearing cops leaning out of their windows with their guns pointed in my direction. The police allowed Carter to drive the Polaris sandwiched in between police cars to the Lafayette Grill. In the 16th round, Carter wrote, We'd sped down the streets at 80 or 90 miles an hour, past the night spot to 12 blocks and beyond, where this, we screeched to a halt in front of the Lafayette Grill and Holding my breath, I looked around at the shotguns pointed at me and the angry faces pressing around my car. Suddenly, I knew exactly how a black man in the South must feel when a white mob is about to lynch him. Get out of the car, a bull-faced cop snarled as he pulled open the door. Stand up against the wall over there and don't move until I tell you. What the hell did you bring us here for, man? Carter asked. Shut up, he barked. The cop pulled the hammer on his pistol to full cock. Just get up against that wall and shut up. Well, here's a note from the narrator uh, that that's what Carter wrote in his book, The 16th Round. But there is an interesting photo of Reuben Carter standing in the street in front of the Lafayette Grill in his cream-colored jacket casually talking to several what appear to me to be disinterested police officers. Not a shotgun in sight. Nearby, his 1966 Dodge Polaris with out-of-state tags was parked. 
In her quick glimpse of the two men running from the downstairs tavern, one tall, the other short, Patricia Graham could not identify either of the two men. Officer Greeno suggested to Pat Graham that she take a closer look at Carter's car. When she walked to the rear of the car, she got a good look at the taillights and began to cry. She said, I'm positive it was the car I had seen pull away after the shots. Alfred Bellow also identified the white as a white car with out-of-state plates and unusual taillights that he described as matching Carter's car. Also, Ronald Ruggiero said it looked like the car. Carter and Artis were loaded into a paddy wagon. I felt myself being roughly searched, Carter wrote. Along with John Artis, a 20-year-old boy who had been riding with me, we were pushed into a stinking rear of a paddy wagon, and it took off, leaving my car behind. Carter and Artis were taken to St. Joseph's Hospital. Carter described the scene there. There was a crew of doctors and nurses frantically trying to help save the life of a balding middle-aged white man. He had been shot in the head. The bullet had made a jagged exit from his left eye. Willie Marins was hanging on to life by a thread. Carter described him as weak, pale, and seemed near dead. Marins was asked, are these, two, are these the two men who shot you? Willie Marins shook his head no. Carter and Artis were then taken to police headquarters on Washington Street. Thanks for joining me for part two of Reuben Carter, John Artis, and the Lafayette Grill Murders. Just the facts. Next week, we'll be introduced to the much maligned lead detective on the case, Vincent D. Simone. In his retirement, Detective D. Simone wrote a book, a very important book called Media Meddlers, available on Amazon, but he didn't publish it. Years after D. Simone's death, his son James, tired of the lies about his father, polished up the manuscript his father wrote and published the book. It's almost the definitive book of the Hurricane Carter case. The investigation would stall for four months before D. Simone had enough evidence to present to the prosecutor. Carter and Artis would be arrested and tried for the murders at the Lafayette Grill. The trial began on April 7, 1967. Thanks so much for joining me today. See you next week.